Hello everyone, my name is Trintu and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Sundar Kapwala, Director of British Future and Peter Ward, Senior Researcher and Lecturer at the Migration Observatory. We will be discussing our latest global data today uh, in advance of World Refugee Day. So welcome Sundar and welcome Peter. Great to be here. Thanks. Thank you very much. Okay, so before we start, I'd just like to remind our listeners and our viewers, of course, that World Refugee Day falls on the 20th of June and it's an international day designated by the United Nations to honour refugees around the world. And of course, just to give you some facts before we start, because we love facts and figures, that over the last decade, the number of internationally displaced people has more than doubled. Last year, it reached 100 million for the first time and is expected to reach 117 million this year. Now, unfortunately, we do not expect these numbers to, uh, to go down. In, in fact, they're more likely to go up in the future with climate change and increased wars and conflicts around the world. Now, most countries will be affected in the future, so it's really important that we have a discussion to understand why and how public attitudes are changing and what this means for some of the policy solutions going forward. And this is one of the reasons why we commission our global research annually uh, for World Refugee Day. So we have the facts and figures in order to um, start the, de the debate. So the research that I will be discussing with Peter and Sunda today covers 20,000 adults in 29 countries. So it's a vast amount of incredibly rich data. So let's just get to it. Got lots of facts and figures to digest. So Peter Sunda, you know that when it comes to the uh, to public attitudes towards refugee, it's a really, really complex picture. And the picture is really, really quite nuance and this bears out in our research. So for instance, this year we find that three in four people across the 29 countries that we survey support the principle of giving people refuge, including refuge in their own countries to escape from war and persecution. But at the same time, we find that a majority around six in 10 also have doubts over whether refugees into their countries are genuine. And this is causing division, it's causing conflict. People want to leave their borders open and to accept more refugees. But at the same time, they're really worried that they're letting in refugees who are really not genuine. Now, in terms of the global context, because we do this survey every year, public attitudes are warmed up, warmed towards refugees incredibly in the, you know, as we came out of the pandemic. But this year, the, the, the sentiments and the feelings towards refugees have dampened a little bit. Uh, and uh, people are less, um, in the scheme of things, you know, less warm towards giving people refuge. It's still quite an incredibly high number, but it is nevertheless uh, calmed down a little bit from last year. Britain is a little bit different we have actually gone up in terms of our attitudes towards giving people refuge. But at the same time, we are still incredibly concerned that people who have come to this country are, are, are not genuine. Now, there's been lots going on. Obviously, uh, since last year, we had the invasion of Ukraine. In Britain, we've got special visas for um, 
Afghans and for people from Hong Kong. And then obviously there has been a lot of debates in Britain about small boats. So I just wanted to go to you first, Peter, just to see if you can shed some lights on how some of these events have shaped and impacted people's attitudes in Britain. But before you start, could you just kind of like clarify for our listeners the difference between an asylum seeker and a refugee uh, in the UK? Because I I know it can get quite confusing. Yes. So typically, uh, an asylum seeker is someone who has travelled to the UK and claimed asylum. Uh, And that's important because you do have to be in the UK to claim asylum. Uh, But there's no legal way of travelling to the UK for the specific purpose of claiming asylum. There's no asylum or humanitarian visa. One can't apply for asylum abroad at something like a UK embassy or consulate. So that's why we see people entering without authorisation, for example, by small boat. So that's an asylum seeker. And typically, an asylum seeker who has been successful in their claim would be described as a refugee. Now, that's slightly different to the related term of a resettled refugee. And that's something quite different entirely. And that's been compared to a scene from the first Toy Story movie where the toys find themselves in an amusement arcade grabber machine. You remember what those are like. And there are a number of small toys in the machine and they view the claw as akin to a god that picks them at random and takes them to a better place. And that's what refugee resettlement is like. The CLAW is the UN refugee agency. It's a total lottery. A tiny share of people get chosen to be resettled, less than 1% of the total in any given year. And you can't apply for that. So that's refugee resettlement. So it's important to be quite clear that that is very different to what we call the normal asylum procedure or process where most people arrive spontaneously, often irregularly, in a country to claim asylum there. Okay, that's I've never actually heard the uh, uh, Toy Story being used uh, to describe uh, such things, but it's a it's a it's a good it's a it's a good one. Um, so it's kind of like in terms of the um, what's been going on globally and what's been going on with the resettlement schemes, you know, in the, in the UK. How do you think that's kind of like impacted on uh, the changes that we're seeing in terms of in terms of sentiments. Um, well, sentiments, perhaps I'm not the best person to speak to that. But with regard to migration policy and immigration, there have been two, I think, quite striking developments. The first is in relation to the way the government legislates with respect to its protection system. So what we've seen in recent years is the emergence of a trend towards the government creating bespoke humanitarian routes that are nationality specific. And you think, for example, of the Hong Kong BNO visa, which is actually just like a normal visa. You have to pay for it. You have to pay the immigration health surcharge. There's no assessment of protection even. It's a very liberal visa. You can come to the UK to work, study, or do nothing. There's that. Now, that's nationality specific, the Ukraine scheme as well, and the Afghan scheme. And that has coincided with an erosion of the normal asylum process open to all nationalities. We've seen that come under increasing attack and restriction by the current government. So that's one policy shift that I think is particularly significant. 
The other is, of course, what's it's done, what it's done to migration. So we saw the net migration numbers, over 600,000. And a big part of that has been through these bespoke humanitarian routes. We've had 175,000 Ukrainians arrive, over 100,000 of those through Homes for Ukraine, over 100,000 BNOs, 20,000 Afghans. And in part because of these large numbers, it, well, it threatens to reinvigorate that old debate about net migration. So for me, those are the two big trends with respect to immigration policy and the numbers themselves. Okay, Sundar, would you like to come in? Tell us a little bit more why you think, you know, some of the global events around the world have kind of like shaped British attitudes towards refugees. Well, I think I think it will interest people and surprise people in Britain to find in this research in a comparative study that Britain is an outrider for confidence and support for refugees. I think I think that might surprise people for a couple of reasons. One is that obviously uh, the Brexit debate and the cultural politics that went with that have been somewhat polarising and immigration was part of that, a loss of confidence in the how governments handled the scale and pace of immigration generally and economic migration in particular. And also because we're having this very heated and polarised debate about asylum in the UK now, which is very divided by political parties, very divided between what the government is saying, what people from refugee charities, campaigns, uh, archbishops and faith leaders are saying. So it's very polarised and yet we see the UK uh, at the edge of the pack internationally for confidence, for support. I think what explains the comparative data is that many people are balancers on the issue of refugees and asylum. We see this broad pro-refugee norm in principle with a small rejectionist minority, larger in some countries, and then we see questions and doubts about how well it will be done. Will there be a sense of control in the system? Will it be managed well? Will people integrate and will people contribute? And we see in the UK a shift towards more confidence in integration, more empathy, more compassion. I think um, the Ukraine crisis had an important uh, impact in particular. While it's a bespoke route and people have um, doubts about what this means for other groups, if you wanted to broaden the confidence and support for refugees in any country, and particularly in Britain in the last few years, you would think, can I get across the political parties? Can I get across the social classes to people who went to university and people who didn't? And can I broaden the geography? Because we know we've got a lot of support for uh, refugees, for diversity, for migration in areas of high diversity and high migration over time. And in areas that are younger or more educated, university towns and cities. But is that going to fall down when we get to the towns, when we get out to the coast, when we get to areas of lower diversity where people are watching the news, worried about what's going on in their country and don't have that everyday contact from a younger age. One thing we saw in the way that the British government didn't have an open policy on Ukraine, actually members of British society had to step up find a Ukrainian they wanted to host and battle with the Home Office to get that person through the system. That didn't just happen in London and Manchester and Oxford and Cambridge. That, that happened in those places. It also happened in Cornwall. It happened in Norfolk. It happened in Carlisle. So everywhere in Britain, people were stepping up to decide to be part of refugee protection. I think they were proud that they did so personally. They were proud they might not have had a spare room in their house, but they were proud that the place they lived in saw people do that. So I think that might be a reason why Britain is maintaining some of that post-pandemic um, softening of attitudes a bit more than some of the other countries in your survey. Yeah, okay. 
And I mean, the the thing that also came out um, of the study is kind of like when we ask people on the impact of refugees in kind of like their local areas. So we find that in Britain, compared to uh, other countries in Europe, there was a, quite a, a bit more concern about the impact of refugees on public services. Uh, so like the health service, um, uh, education, um, welfare, and um I wonder whether some of those concerns are uh, resulting from things that are kind of like already kind of happening anyway in the UK. So things we're not perhaps addressing uh, as effectively and refugees somehow has got con- conflated uh, in, in, in those areas. Well, I think, I think where you have this broad support and then contingent concern about where it will be handled well. There are three aspects to that. Is the system making the right decisions about about the people who are making claims? Are are people with good claims getting them? Are we able to handle that well in a very practical way around school places, health services, housing, and so on? And then are we able to handle it, uh, you know, culturally? As well, do people become us? And you can have societies that feel quite open and quite confident that over the decades we've seen people come British. And when you might have other societies, you know, Germany, for example, um, uh, converted to the idea that they wanted to welcome people to become German in this century, having had the opposite policy um, when they had guest workers um, and so on. So you have a confidence there. I think, um, you know, you can then have debates about whether those perceptions are valid or invalid. And clearly, um, refugees and asylum seekers are a relatively small part of the visible but smaller part of overall migration. And you can debate in all of these cases the pros and cons and the contribution and the pressures. And there are pressures and gains, so these aren't misperceptions as such. Um, housing is the real pressure of migration generally. If you if you have a net inflow, then you need more housing. So you can have maintain high immigration and build houses is, is one position. And if you're very sceptical about housing, maybe you should be sceptical about migration as well. That's another position. But if you if you have high and sustained immigration and you don't build houses or have accommodation. There are other sources of housing demand, but about half of the housing demand is coming from migration generally. And that is going to attach itself to the refugee issue, not because most migrants are refugees, quite the opposite, but because refugees and asylum are the visible part of the um, of the immigration system, particularly the visibility of concerns about control when people look at on their televisions at what's happening in the channel. They feel very differently about that than 150,000 Hong Kongers being given visas, which was a much larger flow, but that is a managed flow that has been chosen well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's sort of the, the one thing in, in all the research that we, we do with you on, on immigration is, is, the, is the, the unmanaged and uncontrolled immigration rather than any uh, feelings towards uh, immigrants to, to the UK. Peter, do you want to come in on anything? I think, well, Sunday's just given a fantastic um, analysis there. I mean, I can say often, Sunday made this great point, which is, yes, asylum seekers and refugees are actually a small part, proportionally, of immigration to the UK. And I find that a lot of the, so I think, fairly legitimate concern about pressure on houses, pressure on uh, services is made about immigrants generally and what I found is well we can look at that and say <clears throat> well with regard to immigrants generally it's true that in, um, population increase as a result 
of immigration does put more pressure on housing and that can increase rents and prices but it always interacts with other aspects of policy so there's this wonderful paper that showed actually that particular effect of a population increase due to immigration only increased rents and house prices or really increased them in areas that had more restrictive uh, rules on construction so it's always this interaction it's never solely immigration um, so that's you know something that i found and then you can offer some sucker as well to say well immigration generally um, it's found that over the long term they actually contribute more uh, through their taxes and other contributions than they take out in public services and that's especially the case where you allow well because they can work and perhaps we'll get on to this um, but, you know a very controversial point which is why are we not allowing um, asylum seekers to work quite a large majority these days are going to end up living here permanently I mean I just looked at the statistics and at the moment it's 75 percent are granted some form of protection and that's at the initial decision almost all of those who refuse go on to appeal and more than 50 percent of appeals are successful so we have to look at who's coming and say hey if we're going to grant them status why are we impeding their integration in this way that's a very nice uh, segue into the into integration. We don't tend to talk very much about integration uh, as we do about policies um, on whether to accept or, or, or keep more refugees out. And I mean, the, the one thing when we were discussing uh, a week ago, you mentioned, Peter, as well, that actually most people who settle in the UK don't actually return to their country of origin. So integration is 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 absolutely vital. And when I when I think back to when my parents first came over to the UK with no English whatsoever, the ability to work was actually essential for integration because it allowed them to see, you know, how lives, uh, uh, how, how, how lives operate in Britain and also to, to learn the language. So this is where the public is very conflicted. Whilst they recognise that uh, being giving asylum seekers the opportunity to work is essential to integration. They also worry that actually by allowing uh, asylum seekers those opportunities, you're going to start attracting more economic migrants. Um, so, what's the kind of what's the solution? What's the solution to this? It's good for us, but we're really scared and we don't want to do it. Um, I, I think I think it's a slightly second order debate because the debate is you know if you've waited six months, even a year. What's what's it doing for you, your well-being, your mental health, your skills? If you're, you know, we tell everybody else they should find work, and then we tell asylum seekers you can't have any work because we can't make your decision for a year. So as a well-being point, I think that's important. But the answer actually is to make good decisions more quickly for people because you know people who want more control, I think, would agree with that. If people have got a valid claim for. Um, asylum in our country we want them and their children to get on with their lives have that security start to contribute fully so letting people work while they're waiting a long time for claim it it's a sort of sticking plaster and so on and also if people want control if you're making decisions um well and quickly and fairly you can talk more easily about can you return people whose claims have failed to somewhere it's safe to do so you can't do that once people have been waiting um ages but i would keep the i would keep the I would keep the issues a bit separate. Partly, you know, asylum is a relatively smaller flow, although people worry about it more. We don't have 
refugee policies and asylum in democratic countries because fruit needs picking. It's true that fruit needs picking, but we have asylum and refugee policies because it's part of our value. It's part of an international treaty that we think we should play our part do our fair share. Now, once we give people status, work is incredibly important to dignity, to integration, to contact, to well-being. That's that's good. But if we if we've got um, gaps in the labour market, we should look at our labour visa policies. And it, it might be that it might be that we could have you know arrangements with countries like Albania, where we don't think people have got uh, a refugee claim in most cases. But the thing to do is to say to somebody from Iran, Syria, Afghanistan, have you got a valid claim? If you have, I want you to fully integrate into our society. I want to really work hard on the refugee employment rate. I want to work hard on the English language and educational opportunities of children. Because historically, we've seen people thrive. We've seen people become fully equally British, you know, across one generation, the children of refugees have always been able to do that but how much effort we put into that adds to their opportunities to contribute fully and actually to society's confidence that this works well when we make the effort to get it right. There's also some scope as well I think to challenge the evidence upon which the government bases its assertion that um, giving asylum seekers work rights would act as a pull factor because that's what they say and I recall that Priti Patel, a year or two ago, once suggested that 70% of those crossing the channel and claiming asylum were economic migrants. This was at a time when the asylum grant rate was in excess of 75%. And I know I raised questions about actually what the evidence was for that claim. And I wasn't the only one. So too did the Migration Advisory Committee, the government's advisory board on immigration policy. And they actually said the government needs to present the evidence that giving work rights will act as a pool factor. And actually, I haven't seen any evidence to suggest that it would. And actually, there's some evidence that suggests that it wouldn't, largely because actually asylum seekers don't typically have a detailed knowledge of work policy that's going to await them. And certainly not a comparative one, that people aren't looking and say, oh, well, Germany this and France that. So I think there's some scope as well. We can question the evidential basis for that claim. I haven't seen any much evidence or any evidence to support it, even though logically uh, it passes the SNP test. I think you're illuminating as well one of the mysteries we might want to get hold of in this conversation. You know, if, uh, if attitudes are at the positive end in the UK, why have we got the politics that we've got? It's actually because there's a lot of muscle memory in the political and media and social debates about immigration and asylum. And so, you know, it's a striking thing that um, acceptance rates have gone up very significantly um, as the crossings have got more dangerous. And that, you know, Priti Patel might be reflecting, you know, a, a, a recent past when the acceptance rate was more in the 40s and the 50s. And, you know, it's partly because obviously it's a very dangerous journey. In my view, that's nobody's idea of a well-managed asylum system, people risking their lives to claim asylum. But it has meant, in fact, that the people still doing that appear to have stronger claims. And so and so the debate about um, genuine refugees, as people have talked about over the decades, is that that is the large part of the group. And yet you have a policy, the policy of deportation to Rwanda isn't interested in making the distinction who's got a strong claim and who hasn't. It's basically said, if you've come in this way, um, you know, we don't want to hear your claim. And that's where the public are very torn between the principle of refugee protection is good. I'd like it to be well managed and orderly, 
be good if people came through legal routes, therefore they should exist. But if you didn't do that, I want to know about the validity of your claim because I feel I feel very torn if I'm if I'm not looking at claims from people from Afghanistan and Syria when there's a 98% chance it's a valid claim. I feel differently about that than a country where the claim might be a 30% chance of being a valid claim. So that's where people are very torn I think between a policy that doesn't reflect the conflict or says it's all, you know, it's all anybody who wants to come must you know must be of meriting of protection or a policy that says we shouldn't look at the claims because of the journey you made and i think what's so striking if we look at people arriving by small boat in particular um of those claims that have been processed and there haven't been very many by the way because waiting times are so long which explains why the backlog is so huge 87 percent have been successful and you don't need to be albert einstein to work out why these are people who are fleeing some of the most chaotic parts of the world they're coming from afghanistan iraq syria yemen eritrea that have unusually high success rates you know so for some of those nationalities it's above 98 around 99 percent you know and i think once people understand that and that's quite contrary to what the government says about this um they suddenly uh adopt quite a different attitude. And the, the government says something quite similar as well, by the way, about modern slavery. So it's not just the bogus asylum seeker, it's the bogus modern slave, but there's a real disconnect between uh, what they say, the government rhetoric and the reality here. You'll recall that Albanians were particularly singled out. And the argument was what was uh, that they are putting themselves into the modern slavery system to frustrate their removal. But then when one looks at the Home Office's own decisions, and I looked at the data on Albanians in particular, one found, finds that in 90% of the cases, the Home Office itself said, these people have reasonable grounds. There are reasonable grounds to believe they've been trafficked or victims of modern slavery. And that's pretty similar uh, to the percentage of all those that are going into the modern slavery system. So you do get these disconnects, I think, between and sometimes it's actually within the Home Office, the ministers say something quite similar to what the government Home Office statisticians are saying. If we go back to kind of like um, successful integration, are there examples of uh, policies in the UK where that's worked? Because, you know, we've had a number of resettlement schemes. And, and are there good examples internationally that we can draw on in terms of what actually makes successful uh, integration, of course, once we've kind of like uh, sorted out the number of uh, asylum seeker applications that we've actually got uh, in the backlog system. I think my, my positive international example would be some of the things that have happened over a long period of time in Canada, where in Canada, I think we've seen, and we're, we're learning from it in the UK and trying to adapt it, um, we, we've seen the community involvement, community sponsorship in refugees, social contact, um, engagement, happen at scale for a long period across very broad geographies of Canada. And I think Canada has tended to be an outlier for positive attitudes for both economic migration and for refugee um, integration. That is to do with identity issues, about what it means to be Canadian and, you know, 
some differentiation from America. But it's also, I think, to do with the social reality, that it's not just in the most urban, metropolitan and liberal areas of Canada that people have the experience of making their own contribution to Canada being a welcoming country and integrating. I think Britain is also a positive example, but actually it's a positive example in the long run because of a long history of refugee integration, maybe half a generation late. But it's a, it's a, it's a success of a society somewhat in the absence of the proactive policies that would have sped it up. I think both with Commonwealth free movement, with previous waves of uh, integration, that the society has done well in the end in the cities, in the places, in the schools. But the policymakers didn't do it. And there were some common sense foundations to get this right. Foundationally, the speed at which you have access, full access to the English language and access to mainstream education is fundamentally important. Worthy or not, we just let you get on with finding a job or we actively think it matters what kind of work you get. Whether there are places we meet and mix and whether the host community is just a passive recipient of refugee and asylum policies has offered its role in what it can do. Host community can do an awful lot for English language for the integration of children and for social contact. It's up to other people, governments, employers, to get other policies right, like housing and public services. So I think we saw an enormous appetite in British society when people were given an opportunity to engage in the Ukraine scheme. Uh, we need we need to generalise with that. We've seen as well in a very quiet way with the Hong Kong welcoming initiative, not hosting people, but people being involved in faith groups, in civic society, and making the welcome happen. I think there's a real opportunity for people who feel a bit left out by the very polarised um, debate that we have, not just to sort of protest or have placards, but actually to play a role in the social contact. And at the human level, family to family, person to person, in you know all places in Britain, I think that can be really powerful. No, it's really interesting you said that. Because uh, just kind of like drawing on my own experience, when, when my parents came over, it was, a, it was a very small number, a bit like what you were saying, Peter, with the claw coming down and, and selecting. It was a very small number of, uh, of people who were allowed in at the time. And it was kind of like a, a dispersal policy. So people were in, uh, so my parents were, were, were in Faversham in Kent. And we were literally like the only family there. I was the only like... Um, Asian-looking kids uh, in the in the school, and it was actually the community. There was no policies going on. It was actually the local community that spent quite a lot of time with our family, and that really, really helped enormously in terms of kind of like bedding us down. So that is a, a really interesting thing that you say that. And you know, the the Ukraine, we should uh, there should be definitely more call to action as a result of Ukraine to try and 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 support people. But that doesn't, like you say take away the importance of actually addressing some of the uh, uh, policies around, you know, uh, how quickly we, we process our, our asylum claims and also our public services. Um, Peter, so do you want to come in on anything? Because, uh... Well, yes, just to say, I mean, in the UK, one of the challenges has always been that we don't have a comprehensive or coherent integration policy. And so that's why we've often seen that local communities are having to pick up the slack there. Um, I mean, there's a quote that we love citing at the Migration Observatory. It's that <clears throat> immigration only works when integration works. 
Um, now, I don't know if you recognise that one, Sunder. That's Catwella 2014, British Future, how to talk about immigration. Um, but, I mean, that's absolutely, absolutely correct. And you would think that that would really strengthen the impetus, really, within government, because I, they recognise that that's true. They have uh, an integration framework. They don't necessarily abide by it. But it is absolutely fundamental to immigration and really the fabric of our multicultural nation, I would suggest. And I think I think it has been underestimated by pro-migration voices who I think tend to make, especially if they're coming from a business background or from, you know, outlets like The Economist um, or the Financial Times, they tend to make these rational and valid claims about demographic projections and needs of the labour market. And I think what, what pro-migration people sometimes don't realise is when they are only making a case about the labour market gaps and so on. That is a they are good for us story. And they are good for us is a benign and well-meant point, but it's still a them and us story. And it hasn't made it hasn't made the them us. And across one generation, we have got a history of being very good at showing how they can be us. You know, historically this has always been contested, you know. Enoch Powell would have been saying, you know, the problem isn't the migrants, it's the children of the migrants. I don't see how Sundar Katwala or Rishi Sunak will ever feel British. And so he's a bit pessimistic about how British Rishi Sunak could feel or how British other people could think he was by the end of the century. Um, but, but that is fundamentally what is going on. It's not just about the fairness of housing policies and school places. It's the confidence that your society is still your society and can be a stronger society when people join it. And so, you know, we're all very familiar with the story of um, refugees who become, you know, quietly quite patriotic in quite an important way to them. But part of the patriotism they feel in being given sanctuary in Britain and, you know, around anniversaries of the refugee convention you know occasionally we've brought together people from all the different decades you know from Hungary in the 1950s and the fall of Yugoslavia and there's a there's a sense of uh, gratitude I think in the sanctuary that was given and a desire to pay that forward and that I think is an incredibly powerful way to say to a country although this has always been contested and there have always been arguments about how to do it well and whether to do it at all when we our better selves, we do it, but we, we need to pay that forward. But the best um, advocates for that, I think, are often the refugees we've protected who have become us, not just not just given sanctuary in our society, but part of our society. The confidence and pride people have in their children and grandchildren, um, you know, is, is something. And those people don't identify as, you know, second generation migrants or second generation refugees or third generation migrants. They're not there. They're part of the society that has welcomed their grandparents and their parents in. So um, I'd like to kind of like move us on now towards the um, the policies towards refugees in the, the, the UK. Because, I mean, uh, we've been talking, there's been lots of uh, discussions on small boats. Uh, and then yesterday we had the uh, announcements of uh, more barges to, to house asylum seekers and then we've got the, obviously the illegal migration bill is still going through the, uh, the House of Lords and Rwanda is still kind of like unresolved. So uh, just to share with you some findings on deterrence, um, public attitudes towards uh, deterrence. So at the moment, the British public is, is pretty split when it comes to uh, sending asylum 
uh, applicants to another host country, aka uh, Rwanda. So we have 35% support, similar proportion opposing. Uh, and our uh, opposition, uh, as well as our support, is actually higher than, than the global average. We're also quite divided on detention centres as well, but we are um, more supportive uh, than not when it comes to uh, basically restricting restricting uh, asylum seekers' movement uh, in detention centres. But finally, we want to see more legal routes to the UK. And on that, we are quite different to the rest of the world. It's quite high, nearly half of us think that there's just not enough legal routes into the UK and more should be provided. Peter, I wonder if you can just kind of like give us some context uh, uh, to wrap around those kind of like those, uh, those, those figures. Well, to take up the question of deterrence, because that's the one thing that all those three policy initiatives are aiming at, that is the Nationality and Borders Act 2022, the Rwanda policy, and now the Illegal Migration Bill, there's actually remarkably little evidence that deterrence policies of this kind have much of an impact, and for two main reasons. The first is that policy is not a particularly strong driver of asylum migration. The people that people, the reason that people leave their countries is conflict, war, uh, environmental catastrophe, persecution. And the reason that they come to countries like the UK and actually get in a small boat and take that additional extra, particularly dangerous journey is because of the presence of family members or members of the community. Policy itself, not a big driver. And then also, of course, for the terrorist policies to work, the would-be migrants do need to know about them. And the research has shown quite consistently in several countries uh, that people don't have a detailed knowledge of the policy that awaits them. So there are real questions about the deterrence logic. I mean, there is a caveat, though, which is that the government's latest policy, the Illegal Migration Bill, is more draconian than the kinds of deterrence policies that have been used in other countries and which form the evidential basis for that. So there's that one caveat. There's another part to this, though, um, which I wonder if it would be helpful to explore. You know, the kinds of practical challenges. We, people talk about the ethical aspects to these policies. They talk about the legal aspects, um, and there are potential uh, barriers there. Well, we know there are. I mean, Rwanda's mired in the courts, and we expect it will be for at least another eight months or so. But there are these real practical challenges because if deterrence doesn't work for the illegal migration bill and numbers continue um, to come in at the rate they have done over the past year or two, then that's a lot of people that you're going to have to detain. So there's a big question there, where are you going to detain these individuals? And then an even more challenging issue is where are you going to send them to? Because at the moment, the only apparently safe third country that we have an agreement with is Rwanda, and we haven't sent a single person there yet. So the government's really putting quite a lot, of its, all of its eggs, into that deterrence basket. Um, so that's going to be the challenge for the government going forward. You can see in these findings some aspects of why the government is trying 
the things it's doing. It's clear that it's clear that control is very important to people. It's clear that there's a visible lack of control, and particularly because it's looking at perhaps the tougher third, the tougher forty percent of the electorate. The government says if we, you know, if people don't think we've got a grip, we'd better sound very tough, sound very robust, get get tougher. You also see the limits and the challenges here because of how opinion polarizes between that. But I think that's then a challenge as well for the critics of the government. You know, people like me in civic society and others in faith and people in opposition politics as well about about their challenge. Because I think what we see here is that if we force people to choose toughest control and deterrence or the most compassionate and humane policy, maybe up to a third of people are able to pick their side reluctantly in some cases but a lot of people really don't want that to be the choice they don't want control without compassion but nor are they convinced by compassion without control and so i think those who want an open welcoming society there's a big message here from this research you've got to show you can manage it well and get a grip so we should prefer regular routes to irregular routes they're clearly safer and then we've got to show that there's a system there. And so I think there are tough challenges for the Liberal side of this debate as well as for the government. It's very unlikely that the government's plans will work. But one thing they're saying explicitly and implicitly, at least we're trying something. And maybe this won't work, but what have you got to try? And I think it's a caricature of the opponents. You know, my think tank, Bridge Futures, put forward our own compassion and control plan and how it would work and so on. But I think you've got to describe it in detail, really, to say this is this is how people can apply. This is how we take our fair share. This is what we do about the pressures. This is what we would do if we say no to different kinds of people. We might be saying no to somebody whose country is safe. We might be saying no to someone whose country isn't safe. Here are our proposals there. So I think I think the challenge of control and compassion is a challenge to this government, but I think it's a challenge to its critics as well. Yeah, well, we can see that in the data. You know, people want more legal, want more legal routes, uh, in the future, but um, at the same time, they do want the government to to tackle it. I mean, my question is, if we think that, you know, it's not going to work, is this going to really backfire and it's going to actually make things worse uh, in terms of making people feel even more unsettled because they think it's completely out of uh, out of control because the government's trying all this thing, all these, you know, all these things. But uh, it's clearly not going to work if all we've got is Rwanda and then we've got the backlog, which doesn't seem to be going down very fast at all. There clearly is a risk there. And what one thing government ministers are saying is you can't expect us not to reflect the anxieties and concerns that people have got. You know, they're asking us to share plan, so here's a plan. The question is, are they just responding to those concerns? Are they actively stoking them? Are they actually saying this is a politically winning issue for us because it would be a very clever trap for you know a lawyer who happens to be the leader of the opposition i bet he likes lawyers too much let's have a fight with lawyers and bishops i think that's very dangerous for government really because in the end while people will have views about those political debates in the media they also expect a government to work out how to handle it and so saying well i couldn't handle it but i know who else i would blame maybe i'll blame NGOs, maybe I'll blame lawyers, maybe I'll blame bishops. People expect the government to do something about it. And I think I think we've seen some, you know, some of the protests uh, around asylum accommodation. They're frightening for the people there and they've got dangerous and fringe elements turning up and trying to exploit them. So I think 
the government, but also its critics, should be trying to take some of the temperature out of this debate as it gets heated and heated and try to get us to this situation of whose plan will work. And we can hear the government's theory that their plan might work if it's legal and provide alternatives. But there is a danger, I think, because what's driving the negative attitudes really are threat perceptions and fear perception. So if you talk loudly about numbers, maybe millions and billions will come in the future, then people will feel higher threat perceptions and close down. The answer to that is to talk about what we actually do in the case of the actual people that are coming and how we can engage with that at a human level. So I don't think you counter the threat perceptions with counter statistics. I think you counter it with the lived reality of what we can do to manage it better. And how optimistic are you? We've got the general election coming up uh, in uh, in uh, a year to 18 months' time that the, the debate will actually move beyond what we're seeing at the moment. I personally think it will get more heated and more polarised to a certain extent. I also have a theory which reflects what happened in 2015, is that while the government this year is saying, we hope it's working, made some progress with Albania, you know, if we get tougher, make more noise, it will work... I don't think the timescales are good for them. So I have a theory that maybe they will be talking less about immigration by the time we actually get to the to the general election. But it will be a challenge, I think, to the opposition parties as well. You know, they don't support the government's plan. What, what What is their response to this challenge from the public to say, could you manage it well? OK, you, you believe in the Refugee Convention. That's a great thing. How does it work in practice? So I, I hope, hope we'll see a more temperate debate from that side of the debate that is more than just what people are against yeah and peter it's final words from you what do you think what do you think the you know it's coming down the track in terms of the the debate and the challenges for the uk yeah well the, the biggest challenge you know remains the small boats issue uh, it's a challenge by the way that other countries have experienced more intensely than we have and continue to do so think about italy and spain Um, Over about the past five or six years, they've had considerably more unauthorised maritime arrivals in the UK. Italy, I think, had 60,000 last year. Spain, slightly over ours, 50,000 or so. That's going to be a big challenge. Um, And also the related policy of the asylum ban, um, the illegal migration bill, and the kinds of effects that might have. Um, on the international community, because, you know, some people have raised the question, well, if if we, in effect, opt out of the global asylum system as we know it, uh, as a signatory, one of the initial drafters, indeed, of the convention, what would stop other countries from doing so? And there's a risk there to the global asylum system as a whole, which, of course, is based on the idea of shared responsibility. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thank you both so very much for joining me and hopefully um, we've moved uh, the conversation along uh, a, a little bit. Just finally from you, I mean, any messages at all for World Refugees Day? I just say well done to everybody who is getting involved practically in this debate, not just of advocacy on those issues, but actually I think it's great to recognise the people who've got involved in in welcoming efforts. I think I think that that cuts through some of the politics of all of this. And I would second that. And me too. So thank you both very much. And uh, goodbye, everybody. Thank you.